George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, Chapter 13. In Barcelona, during all those last weeks I spent there, there was a peculiar evil feeling in the air, an atmosphere of suspicion, fear, uncertainty, and veiled hatred. The May fighting had left ineradicable after-effects behind it. With the fall of the Caballero government, the communists had come definitely into power. The charge of internal order had been handed over to communist ministers, and no one doubted that they would smash their political rivals as soon as they got a quarter of a chance. Nothing was happening as yet. I myself had not even any mental picture of what was going to happen, and yet there was a perpetual vague sense of danger, a consciousness of some evil thing that was impending. However little you were actually conspiring, the atmosphere forced you to feel like a conspirator. You seemed to spend all your time holding whispered conversations in corners of cafes and wondering whether that person at the next table was a police spy. Sinister rumors of all kinds were flying round thanks to the press censorship. One was that the Green Prieto government was planning to compromise the war. At the time, I was inclined to believe this, for the fascists were closing in on Bilbao, and the government was visibly doing nothing to save it. Basque flags were displayed all over the town, girls rattled collecting boxes in the cafes, and there were the usual broadcasts about heroic defenders, but the Basques were getting no real assistance. It was tempting to believe that the government was playing a double game. Later runs have proved that I was quite wrong here, but it seems that Bilbao could have been saved if a little more energy had been shown. An offensive on the Aragon front, even an unsuccessful one, would have forced Franco to divert part of his army. As it was, the government did not begin any offensive action till it was far too late. Indeed, till about the time when Bilbao fell. The CNT was distributing in huge numbers a leaflet saying, Be on your guard, and hinting that a certain party, meaning the communists, was planning a coup d'etat. There was also a widespread fear that Catalonia was going to be invaded. Earlier, when we went back to the front, I had seen the powerful defenses that were being constructed scores of miles behind the front line, and fresh bomb-proof shelters were being dug all over Barcelona. There were frequent scares of air raids and sea raids, more often than not these were false alarms, but every time the sirens blew, the lights all over town blacked out for hours on end and timid people dived for the cellars. Police spies were everywhere. The jails were still crammed with prisoners left over from the May fighting, and others, always of course. Anarchists and POUM adherents were disappearing into jail by ones and twos. So far as one could discover, no one was ever tried or even charged, not even charged with anything so definite as Trotskyism. You were simply flung into jail and kept there, usually incommunicado. Bob Smilly was still in jail in Valencia. We could discover nothing except that neither the ILP representative on the spot nor the lawyer who had been engaged was permitted to see him. Foreigners from the International Column and other militias were getting into jail in larger and larger numbers. Usually they were arrested as deserters. It was typical of the general situation that nobody now knew for certain whether a militiaman was a volunteer or a regular soldier. A few months earlier, anyone enlisting in the militia had been told that he was a volunteer and could, if he wished, get his discharge papers at any time when he was due to leave. Now it appeared that government had changed its mind. A militiaman was a regular soldier and counted as a deserter if he tried to go home. But even about this, no one seemed certain. At some parts of the front, the authorities were still issuing discharges. At the frontier, these were sometimes recognized, sometimes not. If not, you were promptly thrown into jail. Later, the number of foreign deserters in jail swelled into hundreds, but most of them were repatriated when a fuss was made in their own countries. 
Bands of armed assault guards roamed everywhere in the streets. The civil guards were still holding cafes and other buildings and strategic spots, and many of the PSUC buildings were still sandbagged and barricaded. At various points in the town, there were posts manned by civil guards of carabineros who stopped passers-by and demanded their papers. Everyone warned me not to show my POUM militiaman's card, but merely to show my passport and my hospital ticket. Even to be known to have served in the POUM militia was vaguely dangerous. POUM militiamen were, who were wounded or on leave were penalized in petty ways. It was made difficult for them to draw their pay, for instance. La Batalla was still appearing, but it was censored almost out of existence, and Solidaridad and the other anarchist papers were also heavily censored. There was a new rule that censored portions of a newspaper must not be left blank, but filled up with other matter. As a result, it was often impossible to tell whether something had been cut out. The food shortage, which had fluctuated throughout the war, was in one of its bad stages. Bread was scarce, and the cheaper sorts were being adulterated with rice. The bread the soldiers were getting in the barracks was dreadful stuff like putty. Milk and sugar were very scarce, and tobacco almost non-existent except for the expensive smuggled cigarettes. There was an acute shortage of olive oil, which Spaniards used for half a dozen different purposes. The queues of women waiting to buy olive oil were controlled by mounted civil guards who sometimes amused themselves by backing their horses into the queue and trying to make them tread on the women's toes. A minor annoyance of the time was the lack of small change. The silver had been withdrawn, and as yet no new coinage had been issued, so that there was nothing between the ten-centine piece and the note for two-and-a-half pesetas, and donuts below ten pesetas were very scarce. For the poorest people, this meant an aggravation of the food shortage. A woman with only a ten-peseta note in her possession might wait for hours in a queue outside the grocery, and then be unable to buy anything after all because the grocer had no change and she could not afford to spend the whole note. It is not easy to convey the nightmare atmosphere of that time, the peculiar uneasiness produced by rumors that were always changing by censored newspapers and the constant presence of armed men. It is not easy to convey it because of the moment the thing essential to such an atmosphere does not exist in England. In England, political intolerance is not yet taken for granted. There is political persecution in a petty way. If I were a coal miner, I would not care to be known to the boss as a communist. But the good party man, the gangster gramophone of continental politics, is still a rarity, and the notion of liquidating or eliminating everyone who happens to disagree with you does not yet seem natural. It seemed only too natural in Barcelona. The Stalinists were in the saddle, and therefore it was a matter of course that every Trotskyist was in danger. The thing everyone feared was a thing which, after all, did not happen. A fresh outbreak of street fighting which, as before, would be blamed on the POUM and the anarchists. There were times when it caught my ears listening for the first shots. It was as though some huge evil intelligence were brooding over the town. Everyone noticed it and remarked upon it. And it was queer how everyone expressed it in almost the same words. The atmosphere of this place is horrible, like being in a lunatic asylum. But perhaps I ought not to say everyone. Some of the English visitors, who filtered briefly through Spain from hotel to hotel, seemed not to have noticed that there was anything wrong in the general atmosphere. The Duchess of Athol writes, I notice, Sunday Express, 17 October 1937, I was in Valencia, Madrid, and Barcelona. Perfect order prevailed in all three towns without any display of force. All the hotels in which I stayed were not only normal and decent, but extremely comfortable, in spite of the shortages of butter and coffee. It is a peculiarity of English travelers. They do not really believe in the existence of anything outside the smart hotels. I hope they found some butter for the Duchess of Apple. 
I was at the sanatorium Moraine, one of the sanatoria run by the POUM. It was in the suburbs near Tibidabo, the clear-shaped mountain that rises abruptly behind Barcelona, and is traditionally supposed to have been the hill from which Satan showed Jesus the countries of the earth, hence its name. The house had previously belonged to some wealthy bourgeois and had been seized at the time of the revolution. Most of the men there had either been invalided out of the line, or had some wound that had permanently disabled them, amputated limbs, and so forth. There were several other Englishmen there, Williams with a damaged leg, and Stafford Cotman, a boy of 18, who had been sent back from the trenches with suspected tuberculosis, and Arthur Clinton, whose smashed left arm was still strapped to one of those huge wire contraptions nicknamed aeroplanes, which the Spanish hospitals were using. My wife was still staying at the Hotel Continental, and I generally came into Barcelona in the daytime. In the morning, I used to attend the general hospital for electric treatment of my arm. It was a queer business, a series of prickly electric shocks that made various sets of muscles jerk up and down. But it seemed to do some good. The use of my fingers came back, and the pain grew somewhat less. Both of us had decided that the best thing we could do was to go back to England as soon as possible. I was extremely weak, my voice was gone seemingly for good, and the doctors told me that at best it would be several months before I was fit to fight. I had got to start earning some money sooner or later, and there did not seem much sense in staying in Spain and eating food that was needed for other people. But my motives were mainly selfish. I had an overwhelming desire to get away from it all, away from the horrible atmosphere of political suspicion and hatred, from streets thronged by armed men, from air raids, trenches, machine guns, screaming trams, milkless tea, oil cookery, and shortage of cigarettes, from almost everything I had learned to associate with Spain. The doctors at the general hospital had certified me medically unfit, but to get my discharge I had to see a medical board at one of the hospitals near the front, and then go to Seatalmo to get my papers stamped at the POUM militia headquarters. Cop had just come back from the front, full of jubilation. He had just been in action and said that Huesca was going to be taken at last. The government had brought troops in the Madrid front and were concentrating 30,000 men with airplanes in huge numbers. The Italians I had seen going up the line from Tarragona had attacked on the Haka Road, but had seen heavy casualties and lost two tanks. However, the town was bound to fall, Cop said. At last, it didn't. The attack was a frightful mess, up and led to nothing except an orgy of lying in the newspapers. Meanwhile, Cop had to go down to Valencia for an interview with the Ministry of War. He had a letter from General Pozas, now commanding the Army of the East, the usual letter describing Cop as a person of all confidence and recommending him for a special appointment in the engineering section. Cop had been an engineer in civil life. He left for Valencia the same day as I left for Ciatamo, June 15th. It was five days before I got back to Barcelona. A lorry load of us reached Ciatamo about midnight, and as soon as we got to the POUM headquarters, they lined us up and began handing out rifles and cartridges before even taking our names. It seemed that the attack was beginning, and they were likely to call for reserves at any moment. I had my hospital ticket in my pocket, but I could not very well refuse to go with the others. I kicked down the ground with a cartridge box for a pillow, in a mood of deep dismay. Being wounded had spoiled my nerve for the time being. I believe this usually happens, and the prospect of being under fire frightened me horribly. However, there was a bit of mana as usual. We were not called out after all, and next morning I produced my hospital ticket and went in search of my discharge. It meant a series of confused, tiresome journeys. As usual, they bandied one, to and fro from hospital to hospital, Ciotamo, Barbastro, Monson, and then back to Ciotamo to get my discharge stamped, and then down the line again 
by Barbastro and Larita, and the convergence of troops on Huesca had monopolized all the transport and disorganized everything. I remember sleeping in clear places, once in a hospital bed, but once in a ditch, and once on a very narrow bench for which I fell off in the middle of the night, and once in a sort of municipal lodging house in Barbastro. As soon as you got away from the railroad, there was no way of traveling except by jumping chance lorries. You had to wait by the roadside for hours, sometimes three or four hours at a stretch, with knots of disconsolate peasants who carried bundles full of ducks and rabbits, waving to lorry after lorry. When finally you struck a lorry that was not chock full of men, loaves of bread, or ammunition boxes, the bumping over the vile roads wallowed you to pulp. No horse has ever thrown me so high as those lorries used to throw me. The only way of traveling was to crowd all together and cling to one another. To my humiliation, I found that I was still too weak to climb onto a lorry without being helped. I slept a night at Monson Hospital, where I went to see my medical board. In the next bed to me, there was an assault guard wounded over the left eye. He was friendly and gave me cigarettes. I said, in Barcelona, we should have been shooting one another, and we laughed over this. It was clear how the general spirit seemed to change when he got anywhere near the front line. All or nearly all of the vicious hatred of the political parties evaporated. During all the time I was at the front, I never once remember any PSUC adherent showing me any hostility because I was POUM. That kind of thing belonged in Barcelona or in places even remoter from the war. There were a lot of assault guards in Ciatamo. They had been sent on from Barcelona to take part in the attack on Huesca. The assault guards were a corps not intended primarily for the front, and many of them had not been under fire before. Down in Barcelona, they were lords of the street, but up here they were quintos, rookies, and hauled up with militia children of fifteen who had been in the line for months. At Monson Hospital, the doctor did the usual tongue-pulling and mirror-thrusting business, assured me in the same cheerful manner as the others that I should never have a voice again, and signed my certificate. While I waited to be examined, there was going on inside the surgery some dreadful operation without anesthetics. Why without anesthetics, I do not know. It went on and on, screen after screen, and when I went in, there were chairs flung about, and on the floor were pools of blood and urine. The details of that final journey stand out in my mind with strange clarity. I was in a different mood, a more observing mood than I had been for months in the past. I had got my discharge, stamped with the seal of the 29th Division, and the doctor's certificate in which I was declared useless. I was free to go back to England. Consequently, I felt able, almost for the first time, to look at Spain. I had a day to put into Barbastro, for there was only one train a day. Previously, I had seen Barbastro in brief glimpses, and it had seemed to me previously part of the war, a gray, muddy, cold place, full of roaring lorries and shabby troops. It seemed queerly different now. Wandering through it, I became aware of pleasant, tortuous streets, old stone bridges, wine shops with great oozy barrels as tall as a man, and intriguing semi-subterranean shops where men were making cartwheels, daggers, wooden spoons, and goatskin water bottles. I watched a man making a skin bottle and discovered with great interest what I had not known before, that they are made with the fur inside and the fur is not removed, so that you are really drinking distilled goat's hair. I had drunk out of them for months without knowing this, and at the back of the town there was a shallow jade-green river, rising out of it perpendicular cliff of rock, with houses built into the rock, so that from your bedroom window you could spit straight into the water a hundred feet below. Innumerable doves lived in the holes in the cliff, and in Lareda there were old crumbling buildings upon whose cornices thousands upon thousands of swallows had built their nests, so that at a little distance the crusted pattern of nests was like some florid molding of the Rococo period.
It was clear how for nearly six months past I had no eyes for such things. With my discharge papers in my pocket, I felt like a human being again, and also a little like a tourist. For almost the first time, I felt that I was really in Spain, in a country that I had longed to visit all my life. In the quiet back streets of Lerida and Barbastro, I seemed to catch a momentary glimpse, a sort of far-off rumor of the Spain that dwells in everyone's imagination. White sierras, goat herds, dungeons of the Inquisition, Moorish palaces, black, winding trains of mules, gray olive trees, and groves of lemons, girls in black mantillas, the wines of Malaga and Alicante, cathedrals, cardinals, bullfights, gypsies, serenades, and in short, Spain. Of all Europe, it was the country that had most hold upon my imagination. It seemed a pity that when at last I had managed to come here, I had seen only this northeastern corner, in the middle of a confused war, and for the most part in winter. It was late when I got back to Barcelona, and there were no taxis. It was no use trying to get to the sanatorium Morin, which was right outside the town, so I made for the Hotel Continental, stopping for dinner along the way. I remember the conversation I had with the very fatherly waiter about the oak jugs, down to the copper in which they served the wine. I said I would like to buy a set of them to take back to England. The waiter was sympathetic. Yes, beautiful, were they not? But impossible to buy nowadays. Nobody was manufacturing them any longer. Nobody was manufacturing anything. This war, such a pity. We agreed that the war was a pity. Once again, I felt like a tourist. The waiter asked me gently, had I liked Spain? Would I come back to Spain? Oh yes, I should come back to Spain. The peaceful quality of this conversation sticks in my memory because of what happened immediately afterwards. When I got to the hotel, my wife was sitting in the lounge. She got up and came towards me in what struck me as a very unconcerned manner. Then she put an arm around my neck and with a sweet smile for the benefit of the other people in the lounge, hissed in my ear, Get out. What? Get out of here at once. What? Don't keep standing there. You must get outside quickly. What? Why? What do you mean? She had me by the arm and was already leading me toward the stairs. Halfway down we met a Frenchman. I am not going to give his name, for though he had no connection with the POUM, he was a good friend to us all during the trouble. He looked at me with a concerned face. Listen, you mustn't come in here. Get out quickly and hide yourself before they bring up the police. And behold, at the bottom of the stairs, one of the hotel staff, who was a POUM member, unknown to the management, I fancy, slipped furtively out of the lift and told me in broken English to get out. Even now I did not grasp what had happened. What the devil is all this about, I said, as soon as we were on the pavement. Haven't you heard? No, heard what? I've heard nothing. The POUM has been suppressed. They've seized all the buildings. Practically everyone's in prison. And they say they're shooting people already. So that was it. We had to have somewhere to talk. All the big cafes on the Ramblas were thronged with police, but we found a quiet cafe in the side street. My wife explained to me what had happened while I was away. On June 15th, the police had suddenly arrested Andres Nina in his office. The same evening had raided the Hotel Falcon and arrested all the people in it, mostly militiamen on leave. The place was converted immediately into a prison, and in a very little while it was filled to the brim with prisoners of all kinds. Next day, the POUM was declared an illegal organization, and all its offices, bookstalls, sanatoria, red aid centers, and so forth were seized. Meanwhile, the police were arresting everyone they could lay hands on who was known to have any connection with the POUM. Within a day or two, all or almost all of the 40 members of the executive committee were in prison. Possibly one or two had escaped into hiding. But the police were adopting the trick, extensively used on both sides in this war, of seizing a man's wife as a hostage if he disappeared. There was no way of discovering how many people had been arrested. 
My wife had heard that it was about 400 in Barcelona alone. I have since thought that even at that time the numbers must have been greater, and the most fantastic people had been arrested. In some cases, the police had even gone the length of dragging wounded militiamen out of the hospitals. It was all profoundly dismaying. What the devil was it all about? I could understand they were suppressing the POUM, but what were they arresting people for? For nothing, so far as one could discover. Apparently, the suppression of the POUM had a retrospective effect. The POUM was now illegal, and therefore one was breaking the law by having previously belonged to it. As usual, none of the arrested people had been charged. Meanwhile, however, the Valencia Communist Papers were naming the story of a huge, fascist plot, radio communication with the enemy, documents, signs of invisible ink, etc., etc. I have dealt with the story earlier. The significant thing was that it was appearing only in the Valencia Papers. I think I am right in saying there was not a single word about it, or about the suppression of the POUM, in any Barcelona papers, communist, anarchist, or republican. We first learned the precise nature of the charges against the POUM leaders, not from any Spanish paper, but from the English papers that reached, Bar that reached Barcelona a day or two later. What we could not know at this time was that the government was not responsible for the charge of treachery and espionage, and that members of the government were later to repudiate it. We only vaguely knew that POUM leaders, and presumably all the rest of us, were accused of being in fascist pay, and already the rumors were flying around that people were secretly shot in jail. There was a lot of exaggeration about this. That certainly happened in some cases, and there is not much doubt that it happened in the case of Nin. After his arrest, Nin was transferred to Valencia and thence to Madrid, and as early as June 21st, the rumor reached Barcelona that he had been shot. Later, the rumor took a more definite shape. Nin had been shot in prison by the secret police and his body dumped into the street. The story came from several sources, including Federico Montsenes, an ex-member of the government. From that day to this, Nin has never been heard of alive again. When, later, the government was questioned by delegates from various countries, they shilly-shallied and would say only that Nin had disappeared and they knew nothing of his whereabouts. Some of the newspapers produced a tale that he had escaped to fascist territory. No evidence was given in support of it, and Irujo, the Minister of Justice, later declared that the same España news agency had falsified its official communique. In any case, it is most unlikely that a political prisoner of Nin's importance would be allowed to escape. Unless at some future time he is produced alive, I think we must take it that he was murdered in prison. The tale of arrests went on and on, extending over months until the number of political prisoners, not counting fascists, swelled into thousands. One noticeable thing was the autonomy of the lower ranks of the police. Many of the arrests were admittedly illegal, and various people whose release had been ordered by the chief of police were re-arrested at the jail gate and carried off to secret prisons. A typical case is that of Kurt Landau and his wife. They were arrested around June 17th, and Landau immediately disappeared. Five months later, his wife was still in jail, untried and without news of her husband. She declared a hunger strike, after which Minister of Justice sent word to her to assure her that her husband was dead. Shortly afterwards, she was released, to be almost immediately rearrested and flung into prison again. And it was noticeable that the police, at any rate at first, seemed completely indifferent as to any effect their actions might have upon the war. They were quite ready to arrest military officers in important posts without getting permission beforehand. About the end of June, Jose Rivera, the general commanding the 29th Division, was arrested somewhere near the front line by a party of police who had been sent from Barcelona. His men sent a delegation to protest the Ministry of War. It was found that neither the Ministry of War nor Ortega, the chief of police, had been informed of Rivera's arrest. 
In the whole business, the tale that most sticks in my throat, though perhaps it is not of great importance, is that all news of what was happening was kept from the troops at the front. As you will have seen, neither I nor anyone else at the front had heard anything about the suppression of the POUM. All the POUM militia headquarters, Reddit, centers, and so forth were functioning as usual, and as late as June 20th and as far down the line as Lorita, only about a hundred miles from Barcelona, no one had heard what was happening. All word of it was kept from the Barcelona papers. The Valencia papers, which were running the spy stories, did not reach the Aragon front. And no doubt, one reason for arresting all the POUM militiamen on leave in Barcelona was to prevent them from getting back to the front with the news. The draft with which I had gone up to the line on June 15th must have been about the last to go. I'm still puzzled to know how the thing was kept secret, for the supply lorries and so forth were still passing to and fro, but there is no doubt that it was kept secret. And as I have since learned from a number of others, the men in this front line heard nothing till several days later. The motive for all this is clear enough. The attack on Huesca was beginning. The POUM militia was still a separate unit. It was probably feared that if the men knew what was happening, they would refuse to fight. Actually, nothing of the kind happened when the news arrived. In the intervening days, there must have been a number of men who were killed without ever learning that the newspapers in the rear were calling them fascists. This kind of thing is a little difficult to forgive. I know it was the usual policy to keep bad news from the troops, and perhaps as a rule that is justified, but it is a different matter to send men into battle, not even tell them that behind their backs their party is being suppressed, their leaders accused of treachery, and their friends and relatives thrown into prison. My wife began telling me what had happened to our various friends. Some of the English and other foreigners had got across the frontier. Williams and Stafford Cotman had not been arrested when the sanatorium Maureen was raided and were hiding somewhere. So was John McNair, who had been in France and had re-entered Spain after the POUM was declared illegal, a rash thing to do, but he had not cared to stay in safety while his comrades were in danger. For the rest, it was simply a chronicle of, they've got so-and-so, and they've got so-and-so. They seemed to have got nearly everyone. It took me aback to hear that they had also got George Cop. What? Cop? I thought he was in Valencia. It appeared that Cop had come back to Barcelona. He had a letter from the Ministry of War to the Colonel commanding the engineering operations on the Eastern Front. He knew that the POUM had been suppressed, of course, but probably it did not occur to him that the police could be such fools as to arrest him when he was on his way to the front on such an urgent military mission. He had come round to the Hotel Continental to fetch his kit bags. My wife had been out at the time, and the hotel people managed to detain him with some lying story while they rang of the police. I admit I was angry when I heard of Cop's arrest. He was my personal friend. I had served under him for months. I had been under fire with him, and I knew his history. He was a man who had sacrificed everything, family, nationality, livelihood, simply to come to Spain and fight against fascism. By leaving Belgium without permission and joining a foreign army while he was in the Belgian Army Reserve, and earlier by helping to manufacture munitions illegally for the Spanish government, he had piled up years of imprisonment for himself if he should ever return to his own country. He had been in the line since October 1936 had worked his way up from militiaman to major, had been in action I do not know how many times, and been wounded once. During the May Trouble, as I had seen for myself, he had prevented fighting locally and probably saved ten or twenty lives, and all they could do in return was to fling him into jail. It is a waste of time to be angry, but the stupid malignity of this kind of thing does try one's patience. Meanwhile, they had not got my wife. Although she had remained at the Continental, the police had made no move to arrest her. It was fairly obvious that she was being used as a decoy duck. 
couple of nights earlier, however, in the small hours of the morning, six of the plainclothes police had invaded our room at the hotel and searched it. They had seized every scrap of paper we possessed, except, fortunately, our passports and checkbook. They had taken my diaries, all our books, all the press cuttings that had been piling up for the months past. I have often wondered what use those press cuttings were to them. All my war souvenirs and all our letters. Incidentally, they took away a number of letters I'd received from readers. Some of them had not been answered, and of course I did not have the addresses. If anyone who wrote to me about my last book and did not get an answer happens to read these lines, will he please accept this as an apology? I learned afterwards that the police had also seized various belongings that I had left at the sanatorium mound. They even carried off a bundle of my dirty linen. Perhaps they thought it had messages written on it in invisible ink. It was obvious that it would be safer for my wife to stay at the hotel, at any rate for the time being. If she tried to disappear, they would be after her immediately. As for myself, I should have to go straight into hiding. The prospect revolted me. In spite of the innumerable arrests, it was almost impossible for me to believe that I was in any danger. The whole thing seemed too meaningless. It was the same refusal to take this idiotic onslaught seriously that had led Coffin to jail. I kept saying, But why should anyone want to arrest me? What had I done? I was not even a party member of the POUM. Certainly I'd carried arms during the May fighting, but so had, I guess, forty or fifty thousand people. Besides, I was badly in need of a proper night's sleep. I wanted to risk it and go back to the hotel. My wife did not hear of it. Patiently, she explained the state of affairs. It did not matter what I had done or not done. This was not a roundup of criminals. It was merely a reign of terror. I was not guilty of any definite act, but I was guilty of Trotskyism. The fact that I had served in the POUM militia was quite enough to get me into prison. It was no use hanging on to the English notion that you are safe so long as you keep the law. Practically, the law was what the police chose to make it. The only thing to do was to lie low and conceal the fact that I had anything to do with the POUM. We went through the papers in my pockets. My wife made me tear up my militiaman's card, which had POUM on it in big letters. Also a photo of a group of militiamen with a POUM flag in the background. That was the kind of thing that got you arrested nowadays. I had to keep my discharge papers, however. Even these were a danger, for they bore the seal of the 29th Division, and the police would probably know that the 29th Division was the POUM, but without them I could be arrested as a deserter. The thing we had got to think of now was getting out of Spain. There was no sense in staying here with the certainty of imprisonment sooner or later. As a matter of fact, both of us would greatly have liked to stay, just to see what happened. But I foresaw that Spanish prisons would be lousy places. Actually, they were a lot worse than I imagined. Once in prison, you never knew when you would get out, and I was in wretched health apart from the pain in my arm. We arranged to meet the next day at the British consulate, where Cotman and McNair were also coming. It would probably take a couple days to get our passports in order. Before leaving Spain, you had to have your passport stamped in three separate places by the chief of police, by the French consul, and by the Catalan immigration authorities. The chief of police was the danger, of course, but perhaps the British consul could fix things up without letting it be known that we had anything to do with the POUM. Obviously, there must be a list of foreign Trotskyist suspects, and very likely our names were on it, but with luck we might get to the frontier before the list. There was sure to be a lot of muddle in the knob. Fortunately, this was Spain and not Germany. The Spanish secret police had some of the spirit of the Gestapo, but not much of its competence. So we parted. My wife went back to the hotel, and I wandered off into the darkness to find somewhere to sleep. I remember feeling sulky and bored. I had so wanted a night in bed. There was nowhere I could go, no house where I could take refuge. The POUM had practically no underground organization. 
No doubt the leaders had always realized the party was likely to be suppressed, but they'd never expected a wholesale witch-hunt of this description. They'd expected it so little indeed that they were actually continuing the alterations to the POUN buildings. Among other things, they were constructing a cinema in the executive building, which had previously been a bank, up to the very day when the POUM was suppressed. Consequently, the rendezvous and hiding places, which were every revolutionary party ought to possess, as a matter of course, did not exist. Goodness knows how many people, people whose homes had been raided by the police, were sleeping in the streets that night. I had five days of tiresome journeys, sleeping in impossible places, my arm was hurting damnably, and now these fools were chasing me to and fro, and I had got to sleep on the ground again. That was about as far as my thoughts went. I did not make any of the correct political reflections. I never do when things are happening. It seems to be always the case when I get mixed up in war politics. I am conscious of nothing save physical discomfort and a deep desire for this damned nonsense to be over. Afterwards, I can see the significance of events, but while they're happening, I merely want to be out of them. An ignoble trait, perhaps. I walked a long way and fetched up somewhere near the general hospital. I wanted a place where I could lie down without some nosing policeman finding me and demanding my papers. I tried an air raid shelter, but it was newly dug and dripping with damp. Then I came upon the ruins of a church that had been gutted and burnt in the revolution. It was a mere shell, four roofless walls, surrounding piles of rubble. In the half-darkness, I poked about and found a kind of hollow where I could lie down. Lumps of broken masonry are not good to lie on, but fortunately it was a warm night and I managed to get several hours sleep.